Does anyone recognize this coat? No one. This is no one's coat. I, I got this coat because this reminded me of an amazing coat story. I love a good coat story. Anyone have good coat stories? Uh, this is an amazing coat story. So this is the story of a coat, a perfectly grand coat with an amazing history. So this coat started out as the perfect accessory for, we're going to call her Carol. Carol bought this coat when her and her husband were going out on a dinner date. And she goes, oh, I need something nice and fancy for the dinner date. So she wore that, and oh, it was a nice coat. She felt good in it. You know, that kind of, that's kind of clothes. But eventually, you know, coats, even our favorite coats, start to wear around the little edges. And so the, this coat that was her fancy dinner date coat became her, I'm going to run some errands. I've got to run to the grocery store, take, go to the post office, run the kids to school. This became her, her sort of go-to out in public coat, uh, but not that fancy. But then eventually, you know, coats. You get to the point where you go, okay, no one needs to see me in this coat. It became the coat that she wore out when she was raking leaves in the fall or, or running out real quick in the snow to get the mail or, or just to throw on so she wouldn't get wet when she went in the rain. Finally, even that, even that, it became too much. And so she, she folded the coat up and she put it in a bag with some other stuff and she put it in a, in a, uh, in a, in a little corner of the, of the foyer so that when she was going out, she would know, I'm going to take that bag and the stuff that's in it to Goodwill. Donate the coat. Maybe someone else can get some additional use out of it. And her son, Jimmy, came home from school and said, uh, what are you doing with that coat, Mom? Mom said, I wanna, I'm going to get rid of the coat. She, he goes, oh, can I have that coat? And Carol's like, I, I mean, what are you going to do with that coat? It's an old coat. I, I, I just want it. I, I like the coat. I want the coat. She goes, okay, okay, you can have the coat. And so Jimmy took the coat. He took it up to his room, and he put it in the closet, and he had a plan. He had an idea for that coat. Now, he's no fashion designer, but he does know his way around a sewing machine. And so, so Jimmy, after school was done, he'd get home from work, and he, he started working on that coat. And the first thing he did was he took the, the lining out of it. It was a nice lining, but he, but he didn't need the lining. So he took the lining out of it and carefully cut the, cut the threads. Those of you who are sewers know how this works. And got the lining out of it. Then he, then he, then he got the buttons off of the outside of it and and uh, put those to the side, and then he starts separating the sleeves from the rest of it and just deconstructing the coat. And then he begins working that coat. Scissors, cutting out his things. He's got, this, he's got what he knows that coat can be in his head, and so he starts working at it. And his mom's like, what, what are you doing? I hear you're working. No, don't come in. I, I, I'll show you when I'm done. I'll show you when I'm done. Okay, okay. So one night, and... Jimmy said, okay, okay, you want to see your coat? She goes, sure, show me the coat. And he pulls from behind his back this right here. Can we see a picture of it? Right, look at that. You didn't know, did you? You had no idea where that old coat was going to end up. Jimmy knew. So uh, I love that story. I've been sitting on that illustration for like a year and a half. I love that story. I thought, this week I'm going to make it work somehow. So we're making it work somehow. We've heard the story of the frog who turned into a prince, but have you ever heard the one about the coat that turned into a frog? What a transformation. Would you agree? The old coat kept the rain off, but, but the coat that turned into a frog managed and produced a weekly variety show. That's hard work. Starring some of the biggest celebrities in show business. 
he had a job as an on-the-scene, late-breaking news reporter. Anyone remember that gig he had? Gigging is not the right word you want to use when you're talking about Kermit the Frog, is it? <laughs> you got it. You got it. He's spoken at college commencements. He's been the Grand Marshal of the Rose Bowl Parade. He's had, he got his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's got his own stamp from the U.S. Postal Service. He speaks over, where is he, where did he go to? I, I like him. I like him looking over my shoulder. Mason, throw him back up there. He's, he's, he speaks over 20 different languages. How many of you speak more than one? That's quite a frog, would you say? <laughs> he has his own display at the Smithsonian. But if you ask Jimmy... Jimmy Henson, what Kermit's most important role was, he might say this. Kermit, that old coat, <laughs> that old coat taught both kids and adults their colors and their letters and their numbers and the value of sharing and learning and loving others. Kermit had a pretty transformative influence on me. Anyone else say that Kermit's been a pretty big person in your life? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So what does a frog have to do with Core 52? Specifically, the topic we're on today, worship. Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. It's, it's John is the fourth gospel. The gospels are the stories of Jesus, and John is the fourth one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've got a Bible with red letters, follow the red letters until you get to John and it's John chapter 4. I'm going to pray while you're looking that up. And then we will jump into what it means to be uh, a worshiping church and how it ties into a transformed coat and a new frog. Father, we thank you for the way that your word instructs us. And we thank you for the way that you bring, bring sort of ordinary stuff and you cause it to bring new light to some truth that you have revealed to us in your, in your word. Pray that you open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to see and hear what you have for us in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, here, you know, in this community, as I've been explaining kind of where the church is, I always have to describe where it is and, uh, and how many people attend there. And, and now it's, is it associated with the church? Yes, 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 yes. Well, okay, so, so what kind of church are you? I said, well, you know, non no, 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 I mean, like, what kind of, what kind of, are you a worshiping church? One of them was, are you a spirit-filled church? Now, I grew up in so many different types of churches, and I've got wonderful, wonderful experiences with every one of them, and I knew the person asking the question, so I, it was a fair enough question. When they said spirit-filled, I know what they meant. They meant, hey, are you guys, do you guys, when you worship, do you raise your hands or do you clap? Are you a, like an aisle-running church or do you speak in tongues when you worship? What, what is that, what kind of church are you? And I'm always interested in that question because even though I've been a worship leader for 15, 14 years in my previous role, it's always a great question. What is a worshiping church? I've got friends who pastor Liturgy churches, meaning that they, not literally, but liturgy churches, and that means that they know every week exactly what they're going to say and even the prayers they're going to pray. Great churches. I've got friends who pastor high-energy churches, and there's lights and smoke and energy and bouncing up and down, and high-energy churches. It exhausts me to think about it, but I love them, and their churches are amazing. 
I've got friends who pastor running in the aisles churches and falling over churches. And you know what? I love them, and I love the work that God does within that church. I've got the hand-raised pastors and the tongue-speaking pastors and the, the choir and the candle and the organ pastors. And, and all of those churches speak to different people in different ways. And God is able to use all of those different expressions of worship to draw men unto himself. But oftentimes those expressions of worship are as much about us as they are about God. And so it's always fair to ask, well, what kind of worship does God want? It's a good question, isn't it? Are you to John chapter 4 yet? In John chapter 4, I just watched this story on The Chosen this past week, and it hit me again. If you've not watched The Chosen, if you've not downloaded their app and watched the episodes, man, I encourage you to do it. If you've not done it yet, start at season one, episode one. Don't jump to episode eight. It won't make much sense. Start at episode one and work your way through. But if you've seen it already, I encourage you this week, go back and look at episode eight on on season one. Ah, so good. Okay, but if you don't have time, I'm going to share it for you anyway. So Jesus and his disciples are, are, are on their journey, and their path comes to a crossroads. And if they go one way, they go into Samaria, which is mm, mm, that no, no good righteous Jew would set foot in Samaria. Or they go the long way around, down by the lake, and they, they wander through. It's out of the way quite a bit, but if you're really a devout Jew and you're really holy and you really love, Jesus, love God, then that's the right you go. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, uh, I want to go through Samaria. He's got, he's got something in mind. He comes to a well. And there's a woman who is drawing water from that well. It's not early in the morning when normally the women of the village would come and draw water. It's late in the afternoon. She does this so she doesn't have to encounter anyone who might judge her. Now, why would they judge her, you might ask? Well, that's a great question. They might judge her because she's what's known as a fallen woman. We don't use that term much these days, but it's not in the too recent past when fallen woman was something you didn't want to be called if you were a woman. She was fallen. She had been married five times, and the guy that she's with now, she's not actually married to. It's a big deal. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And that's a big deal, too. Because when he asks her for a drink of water, (laughs) it's not just a casual request. For a man to ask a woman anything in that culture was, well, all right, if you have to. But if that woman happens to be a Samaritan woman and a guy, a Jewish man, no, 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 no. No conversation will ever pass between them. If that woman is a Samaritan woman and a fallen woman, oh my word. Well, it's beyond beyond anything you could expect a Jewish man to do. Because it would spiritually pollute him. And he would have to go through all sorts of cleansing stuff to get clean enough to go back into the temple. Now the woman knows this. She's not stupid. She knows that when a Jewish man talks to her, he's taking all of this stuff in (laughs) and absorbing it. And he's doing it anyway. The conversation goes all over. You can read that in chapter 4 and see he talks about water and and life and what it means and, and words of life and never getting thirsty again. And then it lands in this really interesting spot where they're talking about worship. And the woman says, in effect, to Jesus, she goes, so, so explain to me, 
So the Samaritans have this mountain that they worship on because the Jews think we're dogs and won't let us come to the temple. So we worship over here. So do we worship on the mountain, especially a woman like me, worship on the mountain, or do we go try to worship at the temple, knowing that we're not going to set foot within a hundred feet of the temple area because you're not going to let me go there. So what, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus answers her this way in John chapter 4, verses 21 and 24. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It won't matter. <laughs> you Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's explained that to her, that he is the Messiah. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Did you catch that? Jesus goes on to expound just a little bit more. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. If you've got your Bibles open and you've got a pen, you might, you might underline that part, that part where it says, the Father seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I've taught a lot of lessons on worship, and um, we could spend uh, the next six months talking about worship here, but we've got 25 minutes. So for the purposes of the message this morning, we're going to define worship as simply this, the way we love and honor and give attention to God. And we do that in a variety of ways. We, we sing songs, we, we sacrifice, we, we serve. These are all ways that we give love, honor, and attention to God. But there's a second reason that is, I think, very important to us today. Sneeze. Big sneeze. It's going to be an amazing sneeze. It's going to be the sneezes to end all sneezes. Well, I'm not now. It passed. But be ready. It's going to happen, Bo, and I'm, I'm pretty sure. Worship is the love, honor, and attention we give to God, but it's also the way we become more and more like Jesus. Worship is a transformation a transformative activity where Jesus knocks and we invite Jesus in. We open our hands either literally or figuratively open and say, here am I, Lord, wholly available to you. You are worthy of whatever I can give and offer. You are worthy of it. Jesus knocks and we open the door and he comes in and I don't know what, what your garage looks like or your basement looks like or your spare bedroom looks like or maybe your living room looks like, but there's a good chance that there's some mess there. There's a little chaos. And so we invite Jesus into the good, the bad, the exciting, the boring stuff, the things we're really, really proud of and we want to show off, the things that we're like, oh, don't look in there, Jesus. The things we're working on, the things that we don't even know where to start working on them. The things that we're at a loss as to how to make them better. It's our reality. It's a, it's a messy reality. So can you, can you give me an example of that? Well, I can. 
but I want to back up. Here's the truth. Who and how we worship is so important to God because worship is the primary way we maintain the image and character of God in our lives. As believers, worship is where we are, we are reminded time and time again of who Jesus is. And we're not just reminded of it, we're actually made more and more like him in the process. Some of us are going through the Old Testament, reading through the Old Testament. The last couple of books that we've been in, I'm in Jeremiah now, but it seems like it's been this way for the last two weeks. We're reading through the Old Testament. You see this ongoing cycle of blessing and discipline, blessing and discipline, blessing and discipline. And it's, it's, this, it's this sort of, sort of um, floundering the early Israelites sort of lived in in their early history. And it was all the result of not giving the proper love and honor and attention to God. Instead, they were giving it to anyone, anyone else. They were giving it away, literally. And God says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. They were particularly susceptible to the idols and the gods of the neighboring nations. King David and his songwriters wrote this psalm, Psalm 115. It's one of my favorites, not because it's this beautiful hymn of worship, although it does begin as a beautiful hymn of worship, but in verse 4 of Psalm 115, David points his finger at the surrounding nations and the idols, and he says this about them. He says, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Useless. Useless. And then in verse 8, oh, underline this too if you've got it open. In verse 8, those who make them become like them. The Bible makes it very clear that what we give attention and honor to is what we become. That's why God insists time and time and time and time again that we give our love, attention, and honor only to him. We only worship God because worshiping is the way the Father transforms us into Sons and daughters of God that look like him. He tells us to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in my Bible, uh, spirit is a small s. In other versions, it's a capital S. I, I like the ambiguity there, that tension between, wait, whose spirit are we talking about here? Big God spirit or our spirit or general spirit? Well, I think because there is some ambiguity, we can we can we can sort of interpret this in a in a generous way. So for me, when it says to worship in spirit, it simply means this: bringing everything I am, my spirit, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything I am, to everything God is. Little s, big s, God's spirit, and worshiping in truth is not that complicated. We may make it more mystical than it really is. But worshiping in truth simply means looking around and saying, okay, what is reality? We look outside today and there's clouds that is, is sort of scattered across a very blue sky. That sky is not green. That sky is not red. That sky is blue. That is reality. That's reality. Your life has some reality attached to it. 
again, some of it's good, some of it's not so good, but that's the reality. And worshiping in spirit and in truth simply means this, that we are inviting Jesus into our reality and then responding to his invitation to walk into his. Jesus stands at the door and knocks at the door of our messy reality and says, let me in. He wants to come in, by the way. I don't know how many times I've had to respond to people who said, well, when I, when I sort of get my stuff sorted out, when I get my life right, then I'm going to come to your church. I'm going to check it out. And I want to say, no one else did. Just show up. <laughs> we all bring our stuff with us, our reality. I love what A.W. Tozer said, talking about Adam and Eve. Remember a couple months ago we were in Genesis talking about this moment. He says, when Adam sinned, it was not Adam who cried where art thou, God? It was God who cried, where art thou, Adam? God is the one always seeking us. What he finds is often messy, confusing, scary, but that's all right. He says, let me in. Can you give me an example of it? Well, sure can. We just talked about the woman with five husbands. Any of you gone through messy divorces? You know, if you have, that a divorce disrupts not just your life, but it, it has a, a wave effect, for better or for worse. The relationships and friendships and family and friend connections that you had before your divorce don't always stay the same. There's, there's just breakages that happen in a divorce. This woman had five of those. So can you imagine what kind of loneliness and isolation she lived in as one by one people distanced themselves from her? It was a, it's a messy, a messy reality she lived in. Here in our own community, I know of a little girl who's living with her grandmother because her own parents can't be trusted with her. That little girl and that grandma live in a very messy reality. I know a man who, because of his own very poor decisions, poor decisions that in some way were motivated by his own childhood trauma, which led to some addictions, which led to loss of job, which led to some prison time, which led to feeling hopeless and aimless without direction and purpose it's a messy reality he lives in I know a woman who discovered she was pregnant she had three kids already and honestly she did not know that this was going to be something she wanted in her life overwhelmed already already feeling trapped and scared and um, unable to meet the current demands let alone adding more and, and who can blame her if she says, you know what, if that problem just went away, maybe my life and my reality wouldn't be quite as messy and scary and lonely as I feel like it's going to be. Those are all messy realities. You all have your own messy realities, don't you? But reality doesn't have to be messy. I mean, we've got 
we've got dads in our, in our own community, here in our church, who are learning what it means to be a dad after feeling somewhat sort of, I don't know, just confused about it, who struggle knowing how to lead and love their families when, when dads really aren't super appreciated in this world we live in. And so some of these guys just sort of distance themselves and set back and, and just check out and let other people do the hard work of raising their kids. My friend Sergio in Bolivia, great guy. I think we got a picture of him and his family. Great guy. That's he and his wife. I mean, he's, he's an amazing guy. Great little family. Loves Jesus. Working hard. Got a nice little family and, a, and a, a good job and a good future ahead of him. And yet in his heart, he's like, I don't know. Is this really what God has fully intended for me? And he keeps plowing in, but he's like, I, I know that God's got something more for me, but I'm not honestly sure that I have the courage to follow where God may be leading me. And his reality is great. It's fine. Everyone would look and go, what's the problem, buddy? But he goes, I don't know. I am feeling really, my reality is a little bit confused and shadowy right now. Our realities can be messy and scary and confusing, but when we begin to worship, we invite Jesus into that, and Jesus brings us into his reality, and his reality is what he calls the kingdom, and the kingdom, (laughs) this is good, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what he says. So so where, where we've got people living under the weight of their own wrongdoing, their unrighteousness, Jesus says, hey, Hey, come over. I've got some righteousness for you to live in. Where we've got people who are just confused and uncertain and scared and lonely and anxious. He says, hey, let me trade all that out for peace, righteousness and peace. We've got a, we've got a woman who's just feeling alone and bitter. And God says, let me trade your bitterness and give you the garment of joy. With righteousness, peace, and joy, we find hope and we find a future. The woman at the well heard Jesus. She was completely changed and transformed by it. And, 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 and I can tell you that there are additional transformation stories. So my friend, <laughs> the recently released prisoner who is just living with no hope and a future ahead of him, finds a community and finds a family, and with that family comes encouragement, and with that encouragement comes courage to step out and take the first step in rebuilding his life, and he's doing that because of people who said, we believe in you. There's a guy I know, hounded for... 15 to 20 years, buy an old traffic ticket, an old traffic ticket, $20, $40 at the max, and yet that $40 has has hounded him and limited him and hindered him in every step he wants to take. There's There's a warrant out for his arrest. And so all he needs to do is show up and take care of that outstanding warrant. And so a couple of us met and we prayed with him. We said, hey, we're gonna help you get this taken care of. And you know what? He's in the process of getting that taken care of. In fact, the last time I heard, that had been cleared up, and he is able to serve now in a job that provides him with direction and purpose and fulfills him. 15 to 20 years, he lived with the shadow of that, and now 
It's gone. And he's living in a new place, transformed. His future is transformed because someone came alongside and said, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life, and, I, and I'm going to help him do that in your life too. There's a guy in our community who was homeless for 30 years, lived out in the woods, lived under a bridge, lived in the backseat of someone's car, lived on someone's sofa for a while, never had a place to call his home for 30 years, 30 years who now has a key in his pocket that unlocks a door to his apartment. And in his apartment, he has pots and pans. And he's got groceries that he can fix a meal for himself. He's got a broom and a dustpan that he can clean up after himself. He can make his bed. He can wash his windows and mop his floor. He's got a home after 30 years. And you know what is even better (laughs) than a home He has a family and a community of people who said, we're going to be here for you. We're going to be checking in on you. We're going to be making sure that you have people around you to continue to help the process that God's doing in your life of transformation. I could tell you stories about the young mom here who found a church community that was, the women were willing to open their hearts to her and her little kids, and she's had that little baby And now there's little girls running around here that are loud and noisy and full of all kinds of crazy energy, but they are delightful, delightful. And all because people said, hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for me, and let me help him do that for you too. I'll tell you about dads who are learning how to love their kids and get excited about throwing a dress-up dance for their little and Jerome, not-so-little girls, bringing them to the dance. I got pictures of Jerome and Tricia dancing a, a nice waltz. The little kid, little girls were so impressed by that dancing. And I can tell you about Sergio, my friend in Bolivia, who trusted God, <laughs> who trusts in a God who loves him. And, and he says yes to what God calls him to. And God brought him to Bloomington, Indiana to work with a tiny little congregation of Spanish speakers. And his reality is still uncertain and a little scary. But he trusts in a God who loves him perfectly, and perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. And so when I talked to Sergio on Tuesday, I said, so, so are you at peace? He goes, ah, oh, peace is a pretty big word, but I trust God, and I know God's going to take care of me. And if I know God's going to take care of me, then I don't need to fear the immigration process. I don't need to fear the red tape that goes along with extending a green card. I don't have to worry about all that. God's going to take care of that. And he goes, yeah, I guess I guess I have peace. That's an amazing transformation story right there. Now, none of that may look like a traditional worship to you. There's nothing about a choir or an organ or candles or smoke or special lights or a big grand piano or worship. There's nothing in that when when we're talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth. But but worship doesn't need all that. (laughs) That's just stuff. There's nothing in there about whether you kneel to to recite a prayer or you run an aisle or you raise up your hands. There's nothing in that about that. Here's, Here's what it's about. It's about lives being opened up to God and God coming in and saying, I can do something amazing with that old coat of yours. I can create some brand new life for that old life. It's what Paul was writing about when he said in Romans 12, 1, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's not just your bodies, your history, your reality, your good and the bad and the ugly and all in between. 
Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. True and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world that sucks you back into messy reality. Instead, be transformed. Let your mind be renewed by living in the reality that God wants to draw you and make and build into you. This is the beautiful picture of what God can do with a living sacrifice. When we invite Jesus into our reality and we experience the results of living in that new reality. Eternal and abundant life is what Jesus promised us. All because we worship in spirit and in truth. And we invite others into the reality. Remember, remember the woman, she ran off and told people about it. She took what happened to her and she said, I can't let this be a personal experience. I got to bring other people along with me. In Isaiah, the prophet begins his entire book with a tongue lashing to his readers, the Israelites. And he says, you guys have made a really big deal about your gatherings, your Sunday morning stuff. You made a real big deal about your programs and your feasts and your sacrifices. You made a really big deal about how great your worship team is or how amazing your preacher is or, you know, all the things you guys are doing in the community. I, that's, that's great, but here's what I want you to know. That, that none of that is really what is worship. Here's what worship is in Isaiah chapter 1. It says, learn to do right and seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And here at Sherwood Oaks, we are committed to not turning a blind eye to the hurt and pain and suffering in our community. Whether they're spiritually at risk, emotionally at risk, or physically at risk, we, we don't want to be false worshipers. We want to be true worshipers. To be a true worshiper, then we don't turn a blind eye to the messy reality that's right here. We say, hey, let us bring Jesus in to that and see what he can do to change it in an eternal and abundant way. Now, I want to brag on you guys a little bit. Tina's been an amazing advocate for the men's warming shelter, but, but she would say this, and I'm going to echo it, that our church has been an amazing, amazing team in response to the needs that the men's warming shelter has, has offered. You guys have responded so well to that in so many different ways. Thank you. Our community has also experienced so much family devastation because of, well, you name it. And we have people in our congregation who are court-appointed special advocates. They're CASAs, and they've, they said, I'm going to go in and be a voice for the kids who have no voice. Hands of Hope, we've talked about that a couple of times. But these are just people. We've got eight people signed up who want to be part of this. These are eight people who said, hey, we want to we come alongside foster families, a f one foster family in particular in our community, and we want to be an encouragement to them. So it's praying for them. It's, it's, it's coming in and maybe doing some child care with them or bringing in a meal. Practical things that we can say, hey, we see, we see the challenge that you are dealing with, and we want to come, and come, come beside you and, and encourage you. And I tell you, our local DCS is really excited about this opportunity here. If you are interested in doing that, there's some sign-up information at the foyer. If you're even intrigued by it, we've got a training that's coming up. Um, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. All, all this is because we want to be the best church for our community. Hope Resource Center, 
I love Hope Resource Center. Hope Resource Center is doing an amazing thing in embrace, with Embrace Grace here at Sherwood Oaks. We partner with Bertha's Mission and the Hoosier Hills Food Bank. They've moved their hours to the fourth Tuesday of the month, right out here from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock. If you have some time between 4 and 6 o'clock on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, come out here and join us. We would love, we got people who will line up in their cars, and we're just going to put boxes in their cars and wave and smile at them. Say, hey, how, just be a place where they know that if they need help, this is a place they can come. And we're not doing this to get a pat on the back. I'm patting you guys on the back right now because I want to just encourage you. But here's the deal. We don't do this because this is just like, ooh, really cool to do. We do this because Jesus has a heart for these areas. God's heart beats for these areas. And if we in worship are becoming more and more like our Father, then our heart begins to beat like that as well. And we're doing it because God, God wants it done. We say, okay, well, well, let's do that. Let's do that. We don't need a trophy. We got a little birdhouse from the men's warming shelter. We don't need birdhouses. We're not doing it for birdhouses. We're doing it because God's heart cares about this, and we want to care about it as well. Worship is not the same as work. I want to make that clear. But the work of a worshiper always has eternity in it. Always. So, are we a spirit-filled worshiping church? You know what? I think I can confidently say, yes, we are. Now, I don't know. I, I would love to look out there and see eyes closed and hands raised in worship, just singing at the top of your lungs. It would thrill my heart. I'm an old Pentecostal at heart. I love that. Emotional worship, responding with heart, soul, mind, and strength to the moment that God is showing up in our presence and just joining as one body, breathing in and breathing out and, and hearing and listening and responding as one. The body of Christ is truly represented when we gather together. Don't miss gathering together. This is where the body of Christ sort of gets, gets expressed. I love to see that, but I also love to see those hands and those feet going into places outside these walls, taking Jesus and going into the messy realities of people's lives and taking with them by the hand saying, hey, Jesus, and we invite you into a new reality, a new kingdom, righteousness, peace and joy, hope, and a future. We're going to share in a time of communion, and I want you to know this. Today, whatever your reality looks like, truth says we just look at it and we face it, and we just call it out for what it is, whether it's messy or just boring. We say, okay, God, I, I know there's more, that you have more for me than this. Here's the deal. Nothing shocks God. Nothing is going to make him love you any less. So when you feel him knocking, just open the door and say yes to him. Receive that eternal and abundant life in exchange. Now, if you're not a believer, communion is a wonderful opportunity to make that decision for Jesus. To say, I am ready, Lord. Search my heart. <laughs> you know my mess. And I invite you in to transform it. I humbly receive you. This is a perfect opportunity to do that. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, this is the perfect opportunity to do the same thing, where we get a chance to say, search my heart, oh God. As believers and trusters in Jesus, that is our prayer every time we take communion. Search our hearts, oh God. Father, this morning as we share in this moment,
it's a reminder that you love us. You love us in the midst of our messy realities. And you love us enough not to leave us in our messy realities. But you transform us. As we come to you and open our hearts and our lives to you, you do something, I don't even know how to describe it, but you do something that only you can do by your spirit. You make us more and more like you. So this morning as we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded, Jesus, that you died and you rose again to bring us into that kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy where there's hope and a future. You stand at the door and knock, and we say, yes, Lord Jesus, come. I pray this in the name of the one who loves us best and who knows us best, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.